Thanks for tuning to Digital Voices Podcast, where we chat digital transformation, challenges and opportunities across healthcare and life sciences. And now, your host, Ed Marks. Welcome to Digital Voices. Today's pretty exciting drop for me because I have the honor to serve at Mary Crowley Cancer Research. It's a phase one clinical trials organization based out of Dallas, Texas. And it's certainly a highlight for me to serve there on the board. And we have these regular board meetings as you would at a hospital, regular hospital. And, you know, of course, quality is front and center. And uh, at our last qual at our last board meeting, we go through the quality report. We had uh, a zero report, like, you know, it doesn't get better than that when you go through quality metric. And I was like, oh my gosh, Dr. Burris, I, I have to have you on Digital Voices. You have to talk about this. How did how did we accomplish this? So I want to introduce everyone to uh, Dr. Brad Burris. Uh, Brad, welcome to Digital Voices. Thank you very much. I'm really delighted to be here with you. So Brad, and I want to make sure I get this right. You are the vice chair of the board at Mary Crowley Cancer Research and uh, the chairperson for the chief as the chief quality officer, basically for quality. That's correct. That's uh, that's my principal role, and it has been since I've been with Mary Crowley, which is about five and a half years now, pushing six years. That's very cool. So one of the first things we always ask is what songs are on your playlist? What kind of music do you like to listen to? Well, that is going to be a hard thing for me to summarize because I'm a musician and I've been... Uh, Playing the piano and the guitar and the harmonica and the flute since I was about five years old, I think. So I have varied uh, musical interests. And right now, I would say the things I tend to concentrate on things that I'm attempting to master because those are the things that are just circulating in my head all the time. And uh, from, a, from a guitar standpoint, I'm currently working on some Chris Stapleton stuff. And one of my favorite songs of his is What Are You Listening To? Um, very, very interesting song. Um, he, he always has the ability to weave a story um, well with his music. And so I really enjoy his lyrics. I enjoy his music a lot. And on the piano, I am I am currently trying to master the intro to... Jethro Tull, Locomotive Breath. <laughs> I don't know if you, you might remember that song from the 70s, but there is a really uh, elegant piano intro, and I've been trying to master that, and it is proving to be much more difficult than I anticipated. Um, I'm also on the acoustic guitar playing a song right now um, that I would say is on my playlist because I listen to it a lot. And it is from a band called Emerson Lake and Palmer. And they uh, have a song called From the Beginning. Hmm. And Greg Lake wrote that song and played it on guitar. And, and it is also a great mixture of uh, guitar virtuosity and excellent lyrics and singing all rolled into one. So I really like that song a lot, too. That's cool. Yeah, you, you reminded me of Aqualong now after we're done. I'm going to have to listen to some Jethro Tull. And, uh, yeah. yeah, listen to Locomotive Breath and listen to that piano intro. I really highly recommend it. Yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm writing it down. 
uh, right now. But, you know, something else, you know, I found in my research and obviously, obviously we've, we've worked together now for a couple of years uh, on the board. But I found this in my research is you have as one of your other hobbies, uh, Sons of Thunder Motor Works. And so you re restore sort of classic cars. As I, I looked at all the pictures, I like wanted to buy a bunch of cars from you now. What's your favorite car like that you've restored? Um, I always have the car that I'm working on, just like the music I'm working on is usually my current favorite, but, um, I do have one car, which was one of the first cars that I obtained when I was out on my own, married and making some money. And it was one of the first ones I purchased, which is a 1967 Shelby GT 500, which is the biggest, most powerful Shelby that they produced back then. And uh, it's really important to me because I restored it by myself, completely solo. And then I really had an amazing experience in that um, I had, a, a, back when we had answering machines, I walked in one day and my answering machine was flashing and I pushed play and it was a voice that said, oh, hello, this is Carol Shelby. I heard you got one of my original cars, and I'm going to be in Plano. I wondered if I could come by and take a look at it with you. And I called the number he left, and he answered, Hello, it was his per personal cell phone number. And I had a great time having a conversation with him. He did come to Plano uh, because I found he, um, he has nephews and a son that live in Plano. So he visited here frequently. And um, I was able to give him a ride in the car. And when we returned from the ride, uh, and of course I stomped on it a few times, which he really enjoyed. <laughs> he was a race driver. And uh, when we returned and parked, a lot of these old cars have old uh, hoses and things, and it blew a fuel line and was leaking gasoline. <laughs> and he told me, oh, Brad, we're going to burn her to the ground. Get me some fuel line, quick. So I ran into my shop, and I brought some fuel line, and this was back when we actually had film and cameras required developing, and um, my wife was taking pictures of us, and so I have a lot of pictures of me and Carol Shelby working on the engine together, which is a, a really unique uh, memory for me, and now that he's gone and um, I don't have any more connection to him. It's, um, it's poignant for me. And so that's yeah. makes really my number one car. And unfortunately for those memories, I bought the cars cause I thought someday it would be a, you know, a good investment. It probably uh, gain a lot of um, value when Carol Shelby, Shelby was not around anymore. And, uh, and that was true but I didn't realize at the time I purchased it that I was going to actually get to know him. Yeah. And now it just kind of feels like losing a grandpa or something. Yeah. And so I'll never be able to sell the car, which was the purpose of me buying it in the first place. So I kind of messed up that part of the plan, but. Uh, yeah. I, I think I saw a picture of it. At least you had, you had a Shelby on, on the website for Sons of Thunder uh, Motor Works. It's a beautiful car, whatever Mustang that is that you've got. It's a green oh. one. The dark, it's a uh, called dark moss green and it's kind of the Ford copy of British racing green. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's, it's super interesting. 
So we'll have to move on though. Otherwise we'll, we'll, we'll be talking cars the whole time. Uh, what about a life message or mantras or something? Are there words that you live your life by? I have a couple of those. Um, maybe three. One, if you call my cell phone, you'll probably hear my answering machine message, which says, speak to that which is not as if it were and it shall be. And I think that that a lot of people mistake that for a Bible verse, which it isn't. It is a um, it's a Brad Burris ism. (laughs) I I think it kind of speaks to um, the power of positive thinking. And if there is something in your life that is that is not, and if you speak to it as if it were, then it shall come to pass. Um, that really has a lot of meaning for me, um, but it's it's the quickest one that I can put on an answering machine. But the thing that I really um, base my life on would be a quote from Teddy Roosevelt. I think Theodore Roosevelt was really an incredible man. And I really like a couple of his um, isms, but um, the one I like the best is it's, it's not the critic who counts. It's not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there's no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, great devotions, and who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold, timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Love it. No, that's, that's a really good one. Thank you for, uh, for sharing those. We should jump into uh, Mary Crowley because I think it's so impressive. Well, one, the mission and vision of the organization, but really on the quality side too. But can you share with us, and we talked a little bit about your titles, but share with us a little bit about your roles and responsibility at Mary Crowley. Well, you mentioned in, in your introduction that um, – Quality is front and center, and in medicine, there there are uh, psychological and monetary problems with not giving the best quality that you possibly can. People can be harmed by that, and as physicians, we take an oath that very first thing for us is first do no harm. So we're always focused on that, and so that translates into the modern business organization as a quality or continuous quality improvement uh, program. And um, I really got interested in that at first when I was in medical school, because under the direction of professors, even with someone who really knew what he was doing, um, I created a couple of poor quality situations. And I think all physicians do, and that's kind of the purpose of medical school. And uh, so that, that made me realize that even though your heart is in the best place, it's still possible for you to, to do something inappropriately that can lead to a bad outcome. And so that is a real conundrum for a doctor is that you, 
you care greatly and you strive greatly, but sometimes you can still fail. And then the memory of that failure really uh, sticks with you, especially if someone is harmed by it. And so you carry those things your whole life. And that's how I, I became more intensely interested in it. And when I first began with Mary Crowley about six years ago, there was no quality department really. And so um, our chairman um, asked, he tasked me with trying to apply some of my knowledge from my other quality pursuits and to um, apply those to Mary Crowley. And so when you start off a quality program, it was just kind of when there was a problem, it was just me. They would just call me or email me the stuff and then I kind of dealt with it. But I knew that that really wasn't the best way for us to gather data because that relies on somebody to just call me up or email me. So it really helps us to to have a structure to the quality program. And so that's the most important thing in a business standpoint, trying to um, how do you control something that is innately difficult to control? And so through my research with quality, I began to um, wonder how do other businesses that operate in, in areas that are very prone to having severe side effects and, and complications? And um, one of those is the nuclear power industry. Another is the aviation industry where uh, you, you're trying to control heavy machinery with lots of parts where people's lives are at stake. And also in the space industry. And so all three of those, they use a, um, they have all evolved into a system called high reliable, high reliability organizations. And uh, we, we just uh, refer to that as HRO. And so through their um, efforts, we've adapted that into medicine. And um, that is the system that I'm ultimately going to have um, applied at Mary Crowley. But now we have a, uh, we started off with just me and then we expanded to, they gave me a couple of assistants. And then ultimately I have now a, uh, a committee and that committee uh, has about seven to eight attendees who all contribute from the clinical side, from the, um, from the board side, and from management side for Mary Crowley. So we have a lot of representation there. And we've now established a, what we call a dashboard, which is all of our um, people on the clinical level, they understand what items are important for them to grab a hold of and to report as part of the dashboard. And then as um, kind of a management tool within my committee, we, we look at that dashboard and all the things that it brings to us. And then through that, we can have a better chance of analyzing each thing. Where did the mistakes happen? Uh, how can we uh, have administrative uh, policies or, or interventions that can minimize the chance of that occurring a second time? And so when you first begin to assess your uh, organization's quality, you start finding lots of stuff. And so you've got a lot of uh, incidents and a lot of things, you know, that you find really might not be that important for us to be collecting. And so over time, you kind of fine tune the program. And that's kind of where I would say we are 
with Mary Crowley now. We've, we've gone be, over the last year, we were still having a pretty good um, number of individual events occurring. And, and we look at things, when I say quality, I'm talking about everything within the organization. We're not just talking about the quality of healthcare, which is obviously very important to us. But we're also focusing on does our environment at Mary Crowley, does it provide quality service for for guests, uh, for vendors, for even people who just happen to show up in the waiting room? And, um, and there's a lot of things can occur. We even had one occurrence, which really amazed me, that a delivery man brought in a delivery parcel and uh, someone signed for it and he set it down against the wall. But it turned out it was right against the wall outside of where patients would exit a room. And so a, uh, a patient's family exited the room and tripped right over that box where it was set down and uh, fell and ended up having a minor injury, not anything significant, but still... It's something that I would say that's not what a quality institution does. So we deal from everything from that standpoint to um, errors with the application of the, the proper drug, at the proper time, the proper patient. Um, there's, a, there's just a lot of uh, variables. And so now we collect all of those things. And you can imagine how difficult it is to sort through all of those things and each one being so different, analyze the components that, um, that go into it. Um, but I'm happy to say that in our last board meeting, I was able to present the, the quarterly report, which showed that we had zero uh, serious safety events for the entire quarter. And uh, for as many people and as many patients and as many moving parts as the organization has, I uh, considered that to be um, a fabulous, fabulous achievement. Of, and it, it's not my achievement. It's the achievement of the organization. It's uh, really the people at the grassroots taking care of patients that uh, really should be commended for that, um, that achievement. Yeah, it was uh, super exciting to see that. You know, I've, I've been a part of premier institutions and I've never seen that before. And so I, it really made me proud to be, you know, part of Mary Crowley and, and know that we had, we have something like that available to patients and their families um, in the community and beyond uh, to get high quality uh, care, especially for, you know, phase one clinical trial. Is there anything different in quality? Cause I know you, you, you've helped hospitals also sort of in the quality area. Is there any differences or nuances between a clinical trials organization and a hospital when it comes to quality, or is it is it pretty much kind of the same sort of principles and, and challenges? Well, I think from a patient care standpoint, it's very similar. Um, the only real problem when you talk about dealing with uh, clinical trials is that a lot of patients that we receive have already failed at, at several normal levels that where we would see a responding patient. So from the beginning, um, it is, it, we are much more risk probable because of the fact that these patients are usually farther along in their disease process than 
even at the at the main hospital or even at some place like uh, Texas Oncology. Um, even the people who come into their uh, regular visits are not as far along as the people who are coming to have a clinical trial done. The other thing that's challenging about clinical trial organization is that the medications frequently um, have not been utilized in the human population. So you can also imagine that there's a significant chance that this medication, although it may have made it through animal trials, it may not have the same expected uh, results or side effects that it would in other populations. So we're kind of, um, we're a, um, a test bed, I guess. We're, um, because of that, it makes it difficult to anticipate what kind of things may happen and what uh, challenges to delivering quality care might occur. Yeah, that's what makes this, this report that we're talking about even more spectacular. You know, because and for our listeners, and we've had Dr. Barbe uh, on before explaining Mary Crowley Cancer Research and Clinical Trials, but just as a refresher, you know, phase one clinical trials, as you sh- shared, Brad, is uh, untested uh, in humans, uh, the medicines, um, and they're, the, the patients are already further along in their disease state, and it's, it's their last remaining hope in many ways. Um, and so to achieve this, you know, score of you know, the quality perfection uh, makes it even more sort of, you know, spectacular in a, in a good way. And, and it's, we're super proud to be able to deliver that sort of care, as I've mentioned. Uh, for, I agree the- too. Uh, I have that pride with that result. Um, but because of the difficulty in achieving that, I also have to face the realistic aspect that we may not achieve it again, <laughs> but I will we'll continue to strive for that benchmark anyway. Yeah, I was. That was actually my next question. It's like, man, how do you? Because you took it down. I wish we had visuals because if if you saw a visual, as you mentioned, you know, five six years ago when you started in leading the quality program, there were serious safety events, and over time, we've got those down to zero in this last quarter report. Man, yeah, how do you how do you keep it there? What what's the plan to try to keep it at zero? Well, um, I continually try to uh, have the people within my committee task their employees with being more vigilant, being more careful, being more focused on our mission statement at Mary Crowley, which is to give hope to cancer patients. And so we need to always keep in mind, and it's much easier to achieve great results if every single person in the organization realizes that the only reason any of us are there is for the patients. And I continually through my career tell myself that I, it, it's another mantra. It's, it work. it's all about the patient. And if, if you think every day when you go to work that I'm going to focus today on remembering that this is about the patient, this is not about if Dr. Burris, you know, if it's convenient for me to get someplace or if it would make my day easier if I didn't have to do this certain thing or if, uh, you know, I, I have a problem with some other individual who has not performed well previously or who has treated me uh, unfairly previously, um, that would make it about me. And if every person in our organization remembers that it's not about them, that we're all there for the patients 
it makes it so much easier to to achieve a, a really great quality standard. Yeah, that's that's very well said. What should a leader's role in quality be? So for our listeners, so we we span a, a wide variety of listeners, uh, most of them senior uh, in their careers in healthcare, obviously. Uh, so many of them in leadership roles, but not directly in quality. But what is a leader's role generally in quality? What what would you say to you know leaders who aren't in quality? They're not the chief quality officer, but they certainly you know leaders in healthcare. Uh, first of all, you have to lead from the front. So um, it, it would be somewhat hypocritical if, as a quality leader, if I didn't have my own house in order and I was not delivering quality care personally. So I think that's the first challenge. So I really have to lead from the front and be part of the the, the solution and not part of the problem. And... Uh, the other thing that makes it difficult in, in medicine is that we're trying to ask people to report incidents that they would much rather cover up. And so it takes a lot of convincing from a leadership standpoint to have all the individuals in our clinical organization understand that even when you, if you almost made a mistake, and you caught yourself, we still want to know about those. And, and for the most part, employees feel like if they almost made a mistake and then they tell somebody about it, it, it might be jeopardizing their, their future in our organization and their job. And so that is a challenge. That is always a challenge because we never know that that mistake that you almost made when you caught it, uh, we term that a near miss. And it might also be something that is in the future going to be made by someone else and they may not catch it. And then we have a quality event. So convincing our employees that it's okay to tell us when something goes wrong, because we may need to backtrack that and establish an administrative structure or administrative um, um, kind of calibrate the administrative aspects of it so that they, we prevent that same situation from happening again, even though you caught it. And they, they, people tend to kind of feel, all of us in general feel like uh, you didn't break the law if you don't get caught. <laughs> so um, in the quality world, it's a lot different. It's like, even, even if you're the one that catches yourself, We'd still really like to know about that, and I'd like for have a, a place on our dashboard for that to come in and feed into our um, our system of checks and balances, and then we'll decide if it's something that was just a human error because we're all humans and we make errors. And uh, I, I just at one of my other healthcare institutions, I'm currently dealing with a uh, surgery where the wrong area was operated on, and in trying to analyze how that occurs. We just can't believe that it occurs because we have so many checks and balances in that system, but there's still a person who has to begin a surgical procedure. And when that happens, every now and then the person's brain just kind of does something strange and uh, we make a mistake. And uh, luckily this was not anything that led to a bad outcome. 
but it was certainly not something that we consider to be a quality event. It is, it is a, uh, an infringement on the quality that we would like to deliver. And in the healthcare, we call that, um, it is something outside of generally accepted performance standard. And that's something that we weigh all the time in quality too. So, uh, and that's a, that's a moving target frequently too, because um, accepted performance standards evolve um, in, in time. Over time, we all uh, decide to demand a, a higher level of achievement from everyone. But even though we have all these checks and balances and we have um, systems that are designed to prevent having problems, we still do sometimes, just like the space industry, just like nuclear power, just like aviation. There are still mishaps and there will always still be mishaps as long as humans remain in the chain. Yeah. No, that's, I, th- I think how you've described it before at board meetings is this whole culture of safety where especially where getting people to self-report, you know, these, hey, I had a near miss. And for, you know, we're just not trained that way, right? Uh, like you, you already stated so eloquently, uh, we, we tend to want to hide things or, 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 or dismiss them as unimportant. But when you create that culture of safety, I think that's how you get down to this sort of uh, zero, zero uh, mentality, uh, zero event mentality and, and sort of this whole thing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I think that culture of safety is a really great uh, descriptor because if we have each person all the way down the line, right up until the point where they make contact with the patient, if I, I tend to um, tell our nurses and our clinical staff that I would like for you to carry a, a bubble, a sphere of safety and excellent quality uh, delivery that just surrounds your your personal space and so that everywhere you go and everyone you interact with when two bubbles of those quality spaces intersect with each other then we've got we've got two brains really um, focused on it and so if you can just maintain that little force field around you then um, it, it helps us get to the point where we we're not making errors and it helps us to keep our brain more engaged in in caring for people and uh, another saying that i really like um is that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care yeah very well stated look this has been an amazing conversation i've enjoyed you know all aspects of it we talked about um the music and the the cars because you're such an interesting uh person and then, uh, wow, the, the the safety that's taken place, patient safety, quality of care taking place at Mary Crowley and kind of the reasons why, how that happened. So it was a lot of good information. Uh, is there something we missed, Brad, or something you want to double down on uh, as we sort of end our time together? I'll let you have the last word. Um, the most important thing for me um, is that being a stage four cancer survivor for 13 years now, um, I just, I relish in the fact that um, our existence is a glorious thing and it's a, it's a great gift for all of us. And um, I try to live my life every day that way. 
but you know, the world creeps in and there's a lot of, you know, I still shake my fist at people on the highway that cut me off. And, uh, and I would like to, uh, I'd like to just stress to everyone, every single day is a real gift. And it, it's such a, uh, an amazing thing to sit back and see it from a perspective of, I could have not been around for the last 13 years. And so every little experience with my family and with my professional associates, um, it, it really has changed me. And I almost, I hate to say it, but it's the truth that I am a better person for having cancer than I would have been without that experience. And, um, People may not really understand that, but if you spend some time and really think about that, I promise you, you will see your life in a different way. And, um, and Mary Crowley is the way that I give back and the way I give hope. And through trying to make sure that, that we're delivering good quality, it, it's the way that, that it gives me fulfillment. And I, I would like for everyone to feel that way in their profession and in their, in their personal life without having to go through what I went through to, to achieve it. Brad, very, very well said. You're, you're an amazing human. I'm super appreciative of the fact, you know, your the way your heart is knit together and woven together and the empathy you talked a lot about, you know, we're here to exist patient. We're here to serve patients and patients are the center and, and then just your whole mission in life. I, I really appreciate you as a, as a fellow human. I'm glad we get to serve together. Um, on the Mary Crowley Cancer Research Board. And someday maybe um, you'll take me for a spin in your Shelby. Oh, absolutely I will. And, you know, I just finished converting that original Shelby to a modern electronic fuel injection. So it even runs better than uh, when Carol Shelby was alive. It, it really does. It's really a lot of fun. And you have an open invitation to come by the shop anytime you're in Plano, Texas. All so right, yeah. Works.org. Yeah. And I'll show you my Sons of Thunder tattoo. You know, it'll be like a I uh, can't wait. automatic pass in. All right. That that concludes our, our time. Thank you so much for listening. And Brad, thank you again for being our guest. Ed, thank you very much. I'm, I'm very pleased and I'm so glad to be associated with you through Mary Crowley. It's a great gift. Thank you for listening to Digital Voices Podcast with Ed Marks. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe on your preferred streaming service and leave a rating and review. And most importantly, thanks again for listening.